Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are uh, continuing our series that we started last week called Divine Design. This morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, so if you'll be finding that, we'll read a few verses in a moment. Many of you, I know, enjoy watching a good makeover uh, show on television. I know you like that because there are so many of them, meaning that somebody is, of course, watching them. In fact, you might even watch more than you care to admit. I did another quick Google search this week, and I found that there was a list of 182 makeover shows currently on television, which I am happy to say I watch none of them. They, of course, come in all kinds of varieties, but the overall idea remains the same. You take someone or something, you fix a budget on how much you're going to spend, And then you change everything, hopefully for the better, so that at the end of the show, everybody is ooing and aahing over the drastic change and transformation that has taken place. And of course, we wish that we could similarly transform something in our own life, but of course, our husband doesn't have the creativity, the talent, nor the energy to make it happen, not that I'm speaking from a particular discussion that we've had in our own home. There is, of course, an endless variety of these shows. Many of them focus on home renovations. They take uh, an entire home or they take a specific room and they make it over into an exciting living space. Other shows go outside. That is, they make over your backyard, turning it into a garden oasis for you to enjoy, a retreat right there just outside of your own doors. Businesses are not exempt. There are countless shows that come in and take over a struggling business and remake it. And then, of course, there are the personal transformations that don't transform a building or a living space, but they transform a person. Perhaps the style or clothing, maybe the hairdo needs to be redone. So someone else comes in and directs all of these ends to a greater finish. Of course, weight loss is big business as well. So there is competitions on television for people to lose weight. Even those of us who might be leery of change, depending upon our personality or makeup, usually end up excited about whatever these changes are, because most of us do like new things. We imagine that these new things are going to be inherently better and thus improve our life or our lifestyle. That is why in just a few weeks, as we start a new year, Many of us will once again make New Year's resolutions because we want to change something in our lives. Now, last week we began this series by looking at the fact that we are made in the image of God. We said we are image bearers, but we also acknowledge that because of sin, that image of God in our lives has been marred and drastically so. 
And then we talked about the fact that we are remade into the image of Christ. And that is what we are going to focus on this morning. That last point that we looked at last week is going to be our main point this week. That we are remade into the image of Christ. Now, this series, we are looking at six different items that we are declared to be by God. Now, there are many more. In fact, you can do a Google search. Do a search for something like, who am I in Christ? And you will find all kinds of responses from the Bible with the accompanying scripture that goes with them. And I would encourage you to do that and to look up those scriptures. But in this series, we're just going to look at six. So last week, we were image bearers. This week, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are a new creation. Now again, I have to say that this is for those who are in Christ. I prefaced last week by saying the vast majority of what we're going to talk about in this series is going to be for the believer only. That is, if you are not by faith in Christ, then you are not a new creation. But everybody who is in Christ is not only an image bearer, but we are also a new creation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Even as you find that, I will also say that if you're not a new creation, the gospel message goes out to all, and therefore the opportunity is there for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul writes, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, the first thing I want to talk to you about this morning is the reason you and I need to be a new creation. And that reason is that all of us have a checkered past. Now, I know you know what it means to be checkered because you like to do that occasionally at Neyland Stadium, and you understand that the end zones at Neyland are always checkered. But that's orange and white, as you well know. When we talk about someone having a checkered past, we are talking about black and white. It is a phrase used to say that someone's past has both good elements and bad. But usually when we use the phrase, we are talking about the bad part of their history. You don't say someone has a checkered past in a good light. Now, if you know anything about this church in Corinth, to which Paul is writing not only this letter, but the second letter as well, you know that this church was a mess. Of all the churches Paul wrote to, Corinth was probably the worst as far as living out their faith. There were all kinds of things going on. I mean, if you take a quick look back at chapter 5, he addresses there some sexual immorality that was going on in the church, but worse probably than even that, it was going on, everyone knew it, and no one was doing anything about it. And then in chapter 6, the verses prior to what we've read, there were disputes in the congregation. Those disputes were leading to lawsuits between one brother and another. 
They were not allowing the church to settle their disputes. They were not settling them themselves in the name of Christ. They were going to court over it. And yet, in spite of all of these issues in Corinth, he begins the letter by calling them sanctified in Christ Jesus and saints. So Paul is not questioning their salvation, but he is very much questioning whether they are living out their salvation. Corinth, as a culture and a city, was a very pagan and immoral society in that day. And these believers in the church had obviously come out of that environment. They lived in Corinth, and so they had been a part of that pagan and immoral society. And now perhaps, as Paul is writing, there is a temptation for them to go back to the way they used to live. Rather than living according to their new nature, there was a temptation and a snare for them to go back to their old way of life. So by the time we arrive at our text today... Paul makes it very clear that those who live a sinful lifestyle are not a part of the kingdom of God. Now, we talked about the kingdom of God in our series of parables. We talked about the kingdom of heaven and used those terms rather synonymously. And we learned in that series that being part of the kingdom of God is certainly not about being sinless or perfect, otherwise none of us would be in the kingdom of God. So Paul is not urging perfection here, but he is saying that those who persist in these kinds of lifestyles are evidencing the fact that they are not part of the kingdom of God. And so he lists these sins here. Now my focus today is not going to be on this list of sin. We're not going to talk about verses 9 and 10. I'm quite confident that you know what these sins are. I'm confident that you are well aware of most, if not all of them, and you probably have a good idea of whether or not they are part of your own life, whether past or present. Instead, our focus today is going to be on verse 11, from which all three of our points are going to derive. And I get this first point, that is our checkered past, from that first phrase of verse 11, and what a beautiful phrase it is. And such were some of you. Now, I want to be very clear here that while all of us might not find a particular sin of our past listed in verses 9 and 10, all of us do in fact have a checkered past. Paul is listing these particular sins because these are the sins that were first and foremost going on in the culture and the ones that these people had been called out of. These were the sins that this particular church was dealing with. But he's not saying that there were some in the congregation who were free of sin. So when he says, but such were some of you, it doesn't mean that there were some who had no sin at all. So this applies to all of us, whether these particular sins are evident in our past or not, it applies to all of us because all of us have skeletons in our closet. Now, when it comes to our past, that is, our lives prior to coming to faith in Christ, we usually handle it in one of two ways. A lot of people like to live in the past, constantly remembering their former days, like the high school football star and the miracle touchdown that he scored 40 years ago, and he's still telling you about it today. But in this case, we're talking about old sins, and again, we can do this in one of two ways. Some people tend to glory in their past life, 
mentally reliving the good times they had while silently bemoaning the fact that they cannot live those good times any longer. They cannot return to those days. Others, and perhaps this is the majority, live with tremendous guilt in the present because of sins in the past, wondering if God has any way to save them, wondering if they've committed perhaps the unpardonable sin or, or done something that has put them over the edge and God is not going to save them because they are unworthy of it. And make no mistake about it, the, lists in, the sins in this list in verses 9 and 10 are indeed serious in nature. Now, there is a subset to this aspect That is when others try to keep us living in the past by constantly reminding us of our old sins. It might be done in a joking manner, but it turns out to be no joke to us. Or it may be a serious attempt to keep us from growing in our faith or securing some position or success. Now again, let me be very clear here. I do believe that there are sins in the past that can forfeit one for positions of leadership in the present. Some sins are indeed serious enough to forever disqualify us from spiritual leadership. But that is not the same thing as being forgiven by God and moving forward, something we'll talk about shortly. Now the other option is accepting the forgiveness of God Forgetting the sins of our past, figuratively speaking, I know we can't literally forget all of those things, but figuratively speaking, we forget them and we move forward. Paul certainly alludes to this in the letter to the Philippians, where he says of himself that he is forgetting those things which are behind and he's pressing on to those things which are ahead. He's leaving the past in the past and he has a forward focus on his relationship with Christ. Again, more on that in just a moment, but suffice it to say for now that forgetting our past is easier said than done. This is especially true in our digital age where someone can read or hear stories of someone's past coming back to haunt them. A post made as an unwise teenager is dredged up 10 years later, resulting in the loss of a job. It happened this week for the Vols sideline reporter. I don't know if you saw that or not, but she lost her job because of some things she said over a decade ago. A comment on or foolish act caught on video which goes viral and derails a career long after the events of that day have long been forgotten. I, for one, am certainly glad that technology as we have it today was not around when I was in high school or college to document every foolish thing I said or did, but that is a warning to our younger generations that anything and everything you post online is captured forever, and what you might think is funny now may not be viewed as so funny in the future. So while all of us have a checkered past, unless perhaps you were saved at a very young age and never strayed from your relationship with the Lord, all of us have this past, which is why I say the first phrase of verse 11 is a beautiful phrase, because it offers hope. It tells us that whatever our sins we've been involved in in the past, and I do mean whatever sins, no longer have to be a part of our present or future. There is hope for forgiveness and change, not just one or the other, but both, 
Because rightly understood, when we are forgiven by God, it results in transformation. It results in change. And that's where we head to now. So we move forward from our checkered past to talk about our cleansed present. Again, this is for the believer. Every believer has a checkered past, but every believer now is a new creation, and therefore we have a cleansed present. The phrase we've already examined implies that we are not what, what we used to be. We are something different. And this is true of every believer. This is true because, first of all, you have new clothes. I'm getting this from that next phrase in verse 11. You were washed. As opposed to the filthiness of the sins listed in verses 9 and 10, we've now been washed clean. Now, again, this does not mean that we would never sin again. We all know from experience that we do continue to sin. And I have to mention that for fear that you might have doubt and discouragement if you by chance think that you will be perfect after salvation, that a new creation means that you will not sin anymore. And certainly we are not going to be perfect, but we are washed. It is a powerful statement. We all know what it's like to wash the filth of, off of us. Maybe after a hot day at the beach, we get into the condo and we shower and get all that sand off of us and, and freshen up. We know what it's like to have our kids come in from playing outside when they used to play outside, and we would clean them up, getting all of the grass and dirt off of them, and how good it feels to be clean from such filth. We know what it's like to, to have new clothes and to put those new clothes on. And have the confidence that comes with them that we now think we look better than we did before. Now I realize that some prefer old clothes. I know that some of you keep your old clothes holes and all. But that doesn't fit my illustration here. So I'm talking about new clothes. So we've all had that experience. So being washed is a metaphor for being forgiven of our sins. Cleansing is being purified from sin something some of us have a hard time accepting. As I mentioned earlier, some of us don't feel worthy of such forgiveness because of the depth and the quantity of our previous sins. In such cases, the solution is not to try and convince someone that they are worthy because we are not. None of us are worthy of what we're talking about this morning, but God in Christ forgives us and cleanses us anyway. So the solution to someone who says, I'm not worthy of the forgiveness of God, is to tell them, no, you're not, but Christ is worthy, not us, and he forgives us, not on our merits, but on his. That is why we talk all the time about salvation being by grace and mercy. It is not that we deserve forgiveness of sins. It is not a matter of us being uh, good enough to, to warrant that. It is a matter of God being big enough to forgive us of any and all sins. So our new clothing as a new creation is the righteousness of Christ. We were once clothed in filthy garments, but now we have on the garments of our new creation, which are the righteousness of Christ. Jesus tells a parable. I, we didn't use it in the last series. I do think I referenced it. We actually used a similar parable, but not this one specifically. Jesus tells a parable about a wedding feast. 
And the ones who were invited, the ones who were worthy to be there in some sense, didn't bother to show up. And so the king then invites anybody and everybody. We did look at that part, but there is another element, I believe in Luke's version of that parable, where when the people came, they were given wedding garments. But there was one there who did not put on the wedding garments, and so he was cast aside. When they arrived, they were given new clothes befitting the situation, clothing that was appropriate for a royal wedding. And so if we expect to be in the presence of God, we need proper attire. Now, I know casual dress is in vogue now. You can go casual to just about anything you want to go to anymore. But it does matter what you wear when it comes to the kingdom of God. Because the only option is the righteousness of Christ. And that is exactly what you have if you are a new creation. You have new clothes. But not only do you have new clothes, secondly, you have new life. That's the next phrase in verse 11. You were washed, and now he says you were sanctified. Now, if you know your theology, you might wonder why he mentioned sanctification before justification. We tend to list them the other way around. But there is no indication here that the order has any real significance. After all, you notice that all three of these, we haven't gotten to the third one yet, but all three of these are in the past tense. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Because all of these things were done in our past, making us a new creation and all done by Christ. Now again, if you know your theology, you might also question that. You say, I thought sanctification was an ongoing process, not something that occurred in the past. And in fact, I said that very thing last week. So how then can he put this in the past tense? Well, he is in fact talking about that moment of regeneration, but we know that sanctification is an ongoing process whereby we are continually remade in the image of Christ. And so like salvation, sanctification can actually be stated as in all three tenses, You were sanctified, you are being sanctified, and you will be sanctified. All of those are accurate. And in that unbroken chain of salvation that Paul talks about specifically in Romans, we know that when that sanctification process begins, it will be brought to a completion. So sanctification is the process, but it also refers to being set apart by God for his purposes. And in that respect, it is a past tense event that every believer has been made a new creation, having been set apart by God as holy, and now we are called to live according to who we are. That is, God has declared us, remember I said in chapter 1, Paul calls these Corinthian believers saints, sanctified, set apart, but now he's urging them to live like it. In fact, that's really what this whole point of this section of Corinthians is about. If I could boil all of this down into a summary statement, Paul would be saying to them and to us, here is who you are. Now live like it. Live like who God has made you to be. Don't revert back to the old ways because you're not that person anymore. So live according to your new nature. Easier said than done, I realize But we do have everything we need to live out who God has declared us to be. So you've been set apart. 
You've been declared holy by God. So now he says, live a life of holiness. And you have been empowered and are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out this obedience. Because this is who you are as a new creation. And yet studies consistently tell us that as far as external behavior goes, there is very little, if any, discernible difference between the average Christian and the one who does not profess faith in Christ. In fact, I think that's what Phil Young talked about in my absence a few weeks ago. God did not forgive us for our past sins so that we could continue to live in them. Forgiveness brings a transformation of life. It brings a new attitude and approach to sin so that we no longer want to sin. We have a different desire and a different drive. Our, our new desire and drive is to please Christ and, and not serve sin. So again in Romans, Paul so eloquently says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If you've been saved by grace, do we just keep on sinning so that we can have more grace? And Paul answers his own question by saying, God forbid, how can we who have died to sin live any longer therein? Speaking of Paul, lest you conclude that you are too far gone for the, for the forgiveness of God or someone you know is too far gone, consider the man who wrote these very words. Think about his past sins. Think about his checkered past before his, his experience on the Damascus Road. He was an accomplice to murder. I mean, he stood by as Stephen was stoned for his faith. He agreed with the sentence upon Stephen. Though he may not have cast the stones himself, he was certainly in agreement and stood by and watched. He persecuted Christians going elsewhere to bring them back with the intent of having them killed for their faith. So he was an accomplice in Stephen's, uh, accomplished to murder in Stephen's death and in the death of others. He himself called himself the chief of sinners, which in part was his own acknowledgement of his checkered past, along with the fact that uh, he, he did these things before knowing Christ. And yet he had been forgiven of all of these sins, making him a new creation whose purpose was now to glorify the Lord and serve the church. So we need to get to our third element. You have new clothes. You were washed. You have new life. You were sanctified. But no, notice thirdly, you have a new position. That third phrase in verse 11, you were justified. The term justified means to be declared righteous. It means that you are given a right standing with God so that you can be part of the kingdom of God. It is a legal declaration, and that declaration is made by God himself, that we who were once alienated and strangers, we who were once separated from God, now have a relationship with God by virtue of his declaration of our standing with him. So every believer is remade. You've had, to make, you've had a makeover that addresses every aspect of your spiritual life. But now you might ask the question, how is this possible? Given our sinful nature and our choices, how can we move from this checkered past to a cleansed present? Well, we see that in the last couple of phrases of verse 11. Because here we see that we are a new creation because of the change agent. 
That is, this is not because we've turned over a new leaf. This is not because you had some New Year's resolutions and for once you actually followed through on them. This is not because you've tried harder. It's not because there's been some dramatic catalyst in your life that reshaped the way you thought and lived. In one sense, that is the case, but not in the sense that you're thinking about. So all of this has happened, according to verse 11, because it's been done in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is what God has done for you, which is why there is such a major change in your life. I'm afraid sometimes we forget or at least fail to remember that salvation is first and foremost an act of God. You are not saved because you were born into a Christian family. You were not saved because your parents brought you to church when you were young. Yes, those things contributed to it, but you and I are saved for one reason and one reason only, and that is because God supernaturally made us a new creation. It is not because we made a wise choice. It is because God worked in our hearts and lives, which is why we then live our lives in praise and thanks, grateful to the one who gave us salvation and made us new creations by his grace. That is why we want to live lives of obedience, because we know that our lives do not belong to us. That is why we want to serve God and others in gratefulness for what he has done for us. It cheapens salvation when we boil it down to a decision we made or a rite of passage. You know, you have to be baptized when you're in late elementary school or middle school. It cheapens salvation when we think of it in these terms. Yes, I understand that it is a decision that we make. I understand that we must trust Christ. I'm not denying that. But I am saying ultimately we need to be reminded that every person's salvation is in fact first and foremost an act of God whereby he is making us a new creation. And then he is calling us to live according to our new nature. We're going to dive into more of that next week. You know that animals have instincts, certain things they do because of the species that they are. It might be some sort of mating ritual. It might be a, a, a migration. The list could go on and on with, with various instincts that various creations, uh, creatures have. But likewise, you and I have new instincts, new desires, new dreams, because we are a new creation. So Paul says, don't revert back to your old way of life. Don't go back to who you were before because that's not you anymore. That might be who you used to be, but it is not who you are because you are a new creation in Christ, so live like it. I want to close with a verse of Scripture from Paul's second letter to Corinth, a verse that probably would have been better suited for this particular sermon, but I've used it previously. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice he says, if anyone. He is reminding us again that the gospel is for all and the gospel can change anyone. This is not a message reserved for those who deserve it or those who have earned it. This is a message for all because God who stands behind the gospel is powerful enough to change and save anyone. And I shouldn't have to say it, 
but I will. Anyone includes you. There is no past sin in your life that is too great for God to save you. There is no present sin that is going on in your life that is so awful that God cannot change you such that you can read verse 11 and say, but such were some of you. But I also want to say, every person saved by Christ becomes a new creation. This is not an add-on for those who simply embrace it more fully. This is what it means to be saved. The God who saves us remakes us in his own image. You were created in the image of God. That image was marred by sin. But when Christ saves you, he remakes you into that image so that we do indeed have a great Savior who gives us a great salvation. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that though we are unworthy, though we have a checkered past and our present is certainly no perfection, but you and your grace, you and your mercy have chosen to save us and to remake us as new creations. Help us to live like it. Help us to see ourselves not as the world sees us, not as somebody sees us, not even as we see ourselves, but help us to see ourselves as you declare us to be, new creations. So empower us to live according. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.